this is Matt Hurt at Obsessive Viewer on Twitter. And this is ObsessiveViewer.com's The Obsessive Viewer Podcast. And welcome to The Obsessive Viewer, where a movie and TV podcast that covers a specific topic, be it genre, trope, movie, or show, each episode. You can find more of our work at ObsessiveViewer.com. You can also like us on Facebook and join the Facebook group at Facebook.com slash The Obsessive Viewer. And uh, also uh, support us on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Obsessive Viewer. I'm your aforementioned host, Matt Hurt, and with me today is frequent guest and contributing reviewer to ObsessiveViewer.com, Mr. Ben Sears. How's it going, Ben? Pretty good. Good, How's it going? Good. Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, so I told you in the Patreon thing that I was going to save something for the actual episode, and I'm going to go ahead and spring off into that. Are you prepared? I no. Okay. Well, good because I just realized I need to say what we're doing on this episode. <laughs> uh, this is part two of our ongoing series of episodes covering the Ebert's, the Roger Ebert great movies list. Um, throughout his life as a film critic, Roger Ebert wrote essays. Um defining the great movies that he um championed and everything so uh i thought i had a quote that i was going to read okay yes so kind of the overarching or overarching theme or or, uh the quote for ebert's great movies is quote one of the gifts a movie lover can give another is the title of a wonderful film they have not yet discovered here are more than 300 reconsiderations and appreciations of movies from the distant past to the recent past all of movies that I consider worthy of being called great. And that's from Roger Ebert. And we're going to get into our um, second uh, second part of our ongoing series of that. But first, Ben, uh, let's see. I Okay, yeah, I'll just bring, spring into it. I've got a gift for you. Uh-oh. Um, yeah, it's right here. <laughs> okay. Oh, nice. Yes. I bought that. Do you want to tell the audience what it is? Uh, it is, uh, giant penis. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, uh, Roger Ebert's book, The Great Movies. Yes. So I was in Barnes and Noble and I was, uh, looking, cause it was when they were doing their 50% off Criterion sale. And, um, I think I saw one of, one of his books on the shelf. I think it was the, um, I don't know what it was, maybe one of his movie guides or whatever. And then, so I looked up some of his other books that had been published and I realized like, Oh shit, he has the great movies <laughs> published. <laughs> and so I bought two copies of that one for me, one for you. And then I realized after they got here that there are four volumes of it. <laughs> so the other three, uh, are going to be up to you to get, <laughs> okay. um, and I'll probably get my own at some point. The funny thing is in this edition, the first edition, I think maybe only one of the four movies that we will have covered by the end of this episode um in the list are on like the essays are in the in the book so um only one of them is i don't remember which one uh Um, duck soup is in here okay um let me see uh i don't see after hours in here nope and i don't believe tokyo story is network is Network is? Oh, really? Mm-hmm. No shit. Wow. Okay. Uh, hmm. Tokyo Story is not. Okay. Wow. So all of them except for Tokyo Story. Huh. Uh, two for four. 
Yeah. Oh, after two for four. after hours. Oh, after isn't. hours isn't okay. Yeah. So yeah, uh, pretty neat. I read a couple of them. Um, this dude has a future. <laughs> uh, I've got bad news for you. I just realized <laughs> what I said. Um, yeah. Um, and it's interesting. The the movie that I picked for next time, which we'll reveal at the end of the episode, um, is in there. So so that's good. But Excellent. Yeah. yeah. So thank you. Yeah. No problem. Uh, you know, strange coincidence. I was just looking at this on Amazon. Oh God! Earlier did you, you today. Didn't buy it? Did you? No. no. Okay. Thank God. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, that's good. That that is that is very good. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited to have this on my shelf and then read the essays at some point on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this, this edition has a couple of my favorite movies of all time. Um, 2001 A Space Odyssey mm-hmm. and Seven Samurai, which, um, I recently on, um, Facebook and on Letterboxd and everything, I unveiled my top 25 movies of all time. I um, saw that. Yes. Excellent. And yeah. And I was very excited about that. Um, I feel like that list is a good, indicator of my taste and my also also my um snobbery i guess (laughs) to an extent um so yeah i just i'll say the top 10 real quick um 10 to 1 is inception inside out number eight is psycho number seven is jurassic park number six is her number five is scream number four is the dark knight number three is 2001 a space odyssey number two is a movie that you just watched for the first time recently back to the future mm-hmm. and number one is seven samurai because if i did not put seven samurai as my number one movie of all time my number one favorite movie of all time my inner 15 year old uh, movie snob, uh, socially awkward, Matt would have just, just demolished me. Um, we wouldn't so, want that. No, 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 no. He is, he's very powerful. <laughs> really. Um, do you have like a, an, uh, like a top list of all time? Uh, list? no, not an official one. Okay. Uh, but I do enjoy your listing of her on there oh, and yes. where it's at. Mm-hmm. It would probably be pretty high up there for me as well. In my opinion, any movie that has a voice cameo by Kristen Wiig telling a character over the phone to strangle her during intercourse with a dead cat is A-OK in my book, even yeah. though it, it promotes violence against cats. There should be a lot more movies that have that. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it would be on my list, yeah. Although I will say it doesn't advocate violence against cats. It advocates uh, desecrating corpses of cats. Yeah. Because it doesn't say what killed the cat. Um, anyway, so... You, you've also got eighth grade on here, which I am I do. 100% on board with. Nice. Um, and Ex Machina, good mm-hmm. choice as well. Thank you, uh, thank you. Her eighth grade and Ex Machina were all on my best of the decade list. Nice. So kudos there. Very nice. Uh I do have to note your number thirteen is Tommy Boy, <laughs> yes. which I just recently discovered uh Roger Ebert hated. Did he? Okay. Oh, yeah. That does not surprise me at all, to be honest. <laughs> um it's funny. Because uh, a, f- a friend of the show, Doug, from Movie Madness Podcast, he had commented on the Facebook post about it, and he had mentioned that he was surprised to see uh, 
to, to see Tommy Boy on the, on the list. Yeah. And uh, he Tommy Boy 13 surprised me. If you went with most rewatchable, what would your list have been? Um, but uh, I said, yeah, Tommy Boy at 13 is more of a personal placement for me. That movie helped shape so much of my sense of humor and comedy taste. Um, and it just, it, I, it holds up so well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of Roger Ebert books, mm-hmm. there's also a book called I Hated, Hated, Hated yes. This Movie. Which I'll have to get you uh, oh, nice. now. Right on. Yeah. We could do another series <laughs> of episodes all about... Oh, that would actually be really fun. Well, it could uh, coincide with my uh, Happy Madison. Yes, uh, let's talk about that. <laughs> um, that kind of popped up as a, surprise, as a surprise. You are doing a series of essays on our friends at MidwestFilmJournal.com. Their website, you're doing the... <laughs> you're doing a series of essays going through... Is it all of the Happy Madison production? That's movies? the plan, yeah. Oh, God. Plus, I also learned there was one movie, I think in 2009, mm-hmm. by a, an offshoot, I guess, of Happy mm-hmm. Madison called Scary Madison. Uh, it was uh, a horror movie. Uh, okay. I forget what, what it was called now. Um, but it, the budget was like a million dollars. Oh, God. So, uh, oh. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'll cover that one as well or not, but... I mean, October of, is coming up, so... <laughs> as yeah. of right now, yeah, the plan is to do all of them, which I think at this point is maybe 40-something. Holy crap. Oh, man. <laughs> I yeah. feel for you that... So what was the impetus of this? Like, what what got you... What, what made you think, oh, I'm going to subject myself to this? <laughs> Well, uh, first is I'm insane. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, uh, their Midwest Film Journal has a series where writers can do, uh, uh, rankings of franchises. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's called Rank Opinions. Okay. Um, and so I, I got to thinking of like, what would I want to do that could cover that? And, um, I wanted to kind of think outside the box of mm-hmm. more than just, you know, X-Men or, uh, name, you know, Star Wars, whatever. Right. Um, so <laughs> I, I looked into Happy Madison and what their films are and it was just too expansive to do just, you know, one, one article about all 40 something yeah. movies. So I figured I would just dedicate one essay per movie and, God, uh, have oof. it going. That's, it's, it's interesting so far. Yeah. <laughs> so you started out with the bench warmers. Was there any particular reason why you started out with the bench warmers? Because chronologically, that's not the first one. I'm okay. Probably. So you definitely didn't read it then. I d- okay. I, I'm I'm prompting you. <laughs> I did read. I did read. I did read most of it. I think. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes. Uh. There. There is a reason to mm-hmm. that I started out with that one, and that is, uh, <laughs> I took my wife to see that on our first date. Oh God. Uh, um. I don't know. If, if, I don't remember exactly why. It was that one. I think the only offerings at that time were maybe, I don't know, some franchise that I knew she wouldn't be interested Mm -hmm. in, uh, or I don't know. So 
and, and it it didn't really line up with the the time of the date and all that. But okay. yeah, we we went to that se- that movie on our first date. That's so sweet, and that's so information that I knew. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, that's really nice. So. And then the second one you did was for Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo, which I have not read that one yet. Uh-huh. I will cop to that. Um, what? So, going into the series, like, did you do? You, are you just kind of picking them at random, like whatever piques your interest? Or uh, no, I only started with the Benchwarmers because of that reason, and okay. then then we're going back chronological order. Okay, so uh, nice. all the way back to '99, and yeah. That is something else. It's funny because the one of them at some point will be Grandma's Boy. Yep. Um, have you seen that? No. Okay. It actually is not. I'll say this: twenty-four-year-old Matt thought that it was pretty good, <laughs> right? And solid. But it's interesting because um, the main actor, Alan, it's like an Adam Alan uh, Colvert. Yeah. Vehicle. Like he's the star of it. And he, um, he recently on Twitter, like he's, I don't know, he's, I guess, a Trump supporter, I, I guess. But basically, oh, he posted something about COVID and the film critic Scott Weinberg, who he, his, his father died from coronavirus. Okay. Um, like a few months ago. And so he had commented, about it or like uh, Alan Colvert had said something kind of shitty about COVID and then Scott said something also. And then it like, it turned like <laughs> Alan Colvert. Is it Colvert? I think that's uh, how you pronounce it. I think um, so. Yeah. Yeah. He just went off the handle and was like, like he was threatening the critic oh, boy. and saying like, Hey, I'm going to be in, I'm going to be in, this city shooting a movie, I'm going to be in like the city that you live in shooting, shooting a movie. So, you know, we can, we can settle this and everything. (laughs) Wow. Like, and it's just, it's so weird to go through his timeline and just see like all of the, like to see a guy in his, I've got to assume late fifties at this point, just picking fights with people on (laughs) social media and calling them losers as his main retort repeatedly is just really, really sad. <laughs> Twitter's the worst. It is. We it live is. in a garbage society. Yep, yep. And that leads me to my next question that I just that I just came up right now with right now. Uh, ben Sears on Twitter status update: Have you have you <laughs> relinquished your like um ah uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Have you uh, has your a position on joining Twitter been swayed at all? No. Okay, good. And <laughs> trust me, you'll know when it does. Yeah. I will I will definitely uh be checking in with you frequently with this. <laughs> um but for the listeners, if they want to follow you, they can go on to Letterboxd and follow you at Ben Sears. Yep. Um yeah. And where else can they find you online? Um BenSearsphotography.com. Yes. Awesome. Which then, has links to my social and everything. Nice. And then also, before we get into d- deeper into the episode and everything, the drumstick dash thing. Yes. Do you want to promote that again? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the drumstick dash uh, is still happening. Uh, don't know if it's going to be in person or mm. virtual at this point. Um, but uh, so I've been doing a fundraiser for that. Uh, the drumstick dash 
is an annual race held on Thanksgiving morning in Broad Ripple, Indianapolis. Um, and it's one of my favorite races of the year. Uh, it helps fundraise. It's the biggest fundraiser of the year for the Wheeler Mission, which is a uh, homeless shelter in downtown Indy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the primary uh, source of their funding throughout the year. So um, what I have done is uh, set it up. I have set up a fundraising page. You can go there and donate. And uh, I've uh, uh, done a little challenge where uh, for every dollar that's that gets donated to my fundraising page, uh, I will run one mile. Nice. Um, not consecutively, but, right. um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, still going strong. I think Sweet. we're up to $95 at this point. Nice. So, uh, you were a contributor as well. So thank you. I wasn't going to bring it All up, those, but I am quite a philanderer. <laughs> those um, deep pockets from yeah. your, uh, uh, <laughs> obsessive viewer money. So, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, by the way, I know it's not philanderer. I was making a joke. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, I was, I was very happy to, um, make you run. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, if you, if you want to cause me physical pain, that's a good motivator as well. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> nice. And I'll put a link to all that in the show notes as usual. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we get into our reviews, uh, for, for this edition of the Roger Ebert Great Movies list, uh, review series on the Obsessive Viewer, that's fine. Uh, we're going to be reviewing Tokyo Story from 1953 and Network from 1976. Um, but Ben, before we do that, um, we are on the cusp as of this recording of Indie Film Fest. Yes. Um, you have screened some movies, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, anything sticking out or anything that you're excited about? Uh, yeah. Um, well, there, the, the biggest, uh, uh, feature that they're promoting, which is going to be at the Tibbs drive-in is the, uh, movie I used to go here, mm-hmm. which has, uh, is it Jillian, Jillian. or Gillian? Gillian, Gillian. Jacobs yeah. and Jermaine Clement, which mm-hmm. I'm very excited for. Me too. Um, Tibbs drive-in is, it's going to be on the 13th, which, mm-hmm. Which will, will be, be passed uh, by. <laughs> no, but I think, if I understand correctly, I think it can be streamed virtually as well if nice. you buy, buy a virtual pass. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not 100% sure on that, but uh, that's my understanding. Um, so there's that. And then, um, uh, what's the other one? It's uh, it's another one that I'm really interested in. I haven't seen it myself. Okay. But uh it's the other one that they're doing as a double feature for uh at the Tibbs drive-in. Um and it's about like a, a festival of custom vans or something that happened okay. in, in uh Indiana at one point. I'm Ooh. trying to find it here on the website, but I can't remember the name. Yeah, I'm looking for it now as well, but I am just kind of grasping at straws here. <laughs> um, but uh, there, there's a couple other um, features that I screened and uh, made it into the festival as well that um, that are pretty great. Um, 
one that I, I I would say I like the most is called Sleeping in Plastic. Okay. Um, it's about a high schooler who gets involved with a prostitute in a small town. Okay. And um, gets huh. into some trouble. Um, oh, Sleaze Lake is the uh, the other film that they're doing at Tibbs. Okay. Um, so check that out. Um, but anyway, Sleeping in Plastic, very solid drama um oh uh a short documentary that i i screened that i really liked mm-hmm. it's called snag in the plan okay it's about uh these endangered bats in indiana huh. uh that huh. uh they thought were either extinct or uh endangered at least um and they there's a, a team goes to try and find them and study them and everything. Okay. Um, another feature, uh, it's called faith based. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really, uh, the more that I think about it, the more upbeat I am about it. It's really funny. Uh, two kind of slacker guys discover that these, mm-hmm. uh, Christian themed, um, movies are, uh, no matter how good or bad they are, they make tons of money. So they set oh, out wow. to make their own and it's got a crazy yes, cast. Yeah. Um, Jason Alexander, Lance Reddick, Margaret Cho, David Ketchner. Uh, I will say there was, there was one moment where Lance Reddick is in a green screen suit. Okay. And just the visual of that is just hilarious. So, wow. um, check that one out. That's uh, awesome. I recommend that one. Nice. Um, I think that might be about it that I saw that made it here. Nice. But yeah, there's, okay. there's a bunch of, just like Heartland, um, there's a lot of Indiana films, mm. Indiana shorts, Indiana documentaries. Um, yeah, it's just support your local filmmakers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to checking out some of the stuff there. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, one that kind of caught my eye in addition to a lot of the ones that you mentioned was really just, (laughs) I don't have any real, um, reason for it, but the last Christmas party, did you see that at all? No, I didn't. Okay. So really just the cover art speaks to me it just seems like that perfect like indie kind of like romantic drama kind of thing yeah um so that kind of stood out to me but i don't know um much about any of them i have a friend that uh uh works for i don't know exactly what his role is but he's involved more than me uh with indie film fest and he says that james versus his future self is really great okay um I love the title of that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There was one other. Climate of the Hunter, I think Mm -hmm. he said, was really interesting. Nice. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah, um, you can find all of that stuff at uh, IndieFilmFest.org. Their website's really, really nicely put together. Um, Yeah, yeah. you can buy virtual passes and Mm -hmm. watch any... As many as you want. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there's there's like an all-access pass, and then there's like a 
you can buy certain programming blocks nice. uh, based on what you're interested in. Yeah. So, wow. The all access pass is 70 bucks. Um, and there's a four ticket bundle that's for $30. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, that's cool. Awesome. So that is running from August third or yeah, August 13th to the 23rd, I believe. Um, and again, more information at indiefilmfest.org. Um, so, uh, Ben, any other new business or shall we go into our Ebert's Great Movies reviews? I don't think I have anything. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and play the sting, uh, for this, uh, section of the podcast. So we're going to go into our Ebert's Great Movie reviews number part two, um, Electric Boogaloo. Electric Boogaloo (laughs) or, um, Ebert Boogaloo. I don't know. Um, so yeah, here we are with, with our next installment of this series. No name is more synonymous with film criticism than Roger Ebert's. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world. Millions of despairing men, women, and children. People say do film critics have too much power. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. We can help a movie. We can help a movie by sharing our enthusiasm. We can't necessarily hurt a movie that is destined to be a big hit anyway. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. And then, Roger Ebert gets up. What I uh, find very offensive and condescending about your statement is nobody would say to a bunch of white filmmakers, how could you do this to your people? Let us all unite! Okay, so that stinger that I added in post last time, was cut down significantly from the very lengthy one that I made uh, <laughs> previous to that, um, which I was really proud of it and everything. But obviously, I don't want to have like a minute, a minute and fifty second clip play every time we do one of these episodes. <laughs> so I cut it down significantly. But I wanted to brag a little bit, or I wanted to point out kind of something, a, a fun like Easter egg um, um, about that. Uh, did I tell you the the backstory of the song? No, I don't think so. Okay. Maybe. So the music that you just heard in the background of that stinger that I had for, um, for this section of the podcast was from the, from the trailer for the, is it Terrence Malick movie? Um, To the Wonder. Okay. Um, and To the Wonder was the last movie that Roger Ebert ever reviewed. Huh. So kind of a nice little Easter egg, um, for that. Um, yeah. And so maybe we should add to the wonder as our last movie for this series. That, oh, <laughs> I actually really like that. That, okay. Yeah. Yeah. If we remember by then, <laughs> um, in 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we are going to be reviewing Tokyo Story and Network on this installment of this series. Um, of course, Roger Ebert's essays for both movies are going to be in the show notes of this episode. And I also added a list on Letterboxd that is going to, I have two lists on Letterboxd regarding this series. So I have a list on Letterboxd that has all of the Ebert's great movies list, um, on there. And then I also just today created a new list that is tracking the movies that we watch and review from the list. So if you go to that, you'll see it's kind of cool in the, in the, in the added notes. For it, I have like uh, our rating of a thumbs up or thumbs down for each mm-hmm. one. And then I also have a link to the podcast episode that correlates with it. So uh, check that out. Link in the show notes for that as well. 
So Ben, are you ready to get into some Ebert great movies? Ebert's great movies, great movies. Very excited. Okay, great. So first up is Tokyo Story from 1953, directed by Yasujiro Ozu. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, the plot summary is the elderly Shukishi and his wife Tomi take the long journey from their small seaside village to visit their adult children in Tokyo. Their elder son, Kochi, a doctor, and their daughter, Shije, a hairdresser, don't have much time to spend with their aged parents, and so it falls to Noriko, uh, the widow of their younger son who was killed in the war, to keep her in-laws company. So, Ben, you picked this movie for for us to watch for this uh, for this installment of it. Do you want to give a rundown of why you picked it? And I know that you've watched one other Ozu film as well. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to kind of give some background on that? Yeah, um, I didn't really have a, a deep seated reason for picking this one in particular. I guess I just I realized that. Uh, classic like older Japanese films have been a real blind spot for me um I I was trying to think of like what else from this era I have seen and I couldn't really come up with anything um I mean I I haven't still haven't gotten around to seeing any Kurosawa Uh, I plan on remedying that soon Mm -hmm. um but so I, I figured this would be a good, uh, entry point. Um, nice. and I, yeah, I did see floating weeds, uh, before watching this just so I could kind of get myself oriented with Ozu and his style and kind of what he's all about. Okay. Um, and I won't talk too much about it because it's another film on this list. Oh, actually. Okay. So, um, that was, that was kind of one thing that I had been debating back and forth is whether to do this one or floating weeds. Um, okay. so, um, yeah, that was, that's really the only reason that I picked it. There wasn't really a sentimental reason or, uh, anything in particular. So nice. Yeah. Just okay. a good way to, uh, check off some boxes. Nice. And I have never seen a single Ozu film. Yeah. Um, so I was very interested in this one. Um, I think I mentioned last time that I was interested in it because I'd seen it kind of in the criterion collection lists while I was browsing for the sales. Um, and it's funny because <laughs> this year, this year for me in terms of movie watching has turned into like the year of Japanese cinema. <laughs> so I have like, since I've been playing Ghost of Tsushima, I have just devoured a ton of samurai movies, um, particularly a bunch of Kurosawa movies that I've revisited and revisited and everything. And on top of that, I'm also reviewing all of the Godzilla films from the Showa era criterion set on the website. Um, and then I have also dabbled in some of the Zatoichi films on the criterion channel, which uh, is something I'm hoping to do for a, for a review series next year. But, uh, yeah, so it's funny because up until, yeah, up until last night, if you looked at my stats page on Letterboxd, which is at Obsessive Viewer on Letterboxd, um, you would see like where it has like the, your most watched actors. Okay. You would see just a ton of like black and white pictures of <laughs> Japanese movie stars from the 1950s and 60s. Uh huh. And then one 
picture of Chris Evans. <laughs> and uh, and then I watched last night. I watched Rodan and Mothra versus Godzilla, and that kicked Chris Evans off of the list. So oh, man. now it's just all Japanese actors from uh, the fifties and sixties. Nice. So, yeah. So it's it's kind of uh, kind of unique. I don't know. I don't know how I got into this, but I'm enjoying it quite a bit because um, there's some really good stuff there. And like I said before, Seven Samurai is my favorite movie. Of all time. Um, so I am definitely digging that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So were you, were there, are there any actors from Tokyo Story that are in any other, uh, Kurosawa or any of the other yes. films? Um, yes. And I don't have that information readily available, but I will try my best because I know that there are a lot, um, uh, there are a lot that I have seen. So I'm just going to kind of go down the line. Nope, he's not in there. I know that uh, the actress that plays the daughter-in-law, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't get to do a ton of research, but I think she's she's kind of like Ozu's go to she's kind of like okay. Scorsese and De Niro oh, that kind really? of thing so nice. um she's in a bunch of his movies from what i could tell nice but other than that i don't know if the actors that were were in this are in a bunch of his other films mm. i see yeah actually the one actor got that was in Tokyo Story as well as some of the other uh, some of the Kurosawa movies I've watched this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently got bumped when I watched Rodan, so I can't find him here. <laughs> um, That's okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there's Chris Evans when I go to expand it. <laughs> so yeah, but um, yeah. So I was excited to watch a Japanese movie that was not directed by Kurosawa. And was not a samurai movie. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was, uh, that was an in- interesting, um, not challenge, but an interesting kind of, uh, viewpoint to take, I guess, for this. Um, so Ben, in overall terms and non-spoiler and stuff, uh, how did you feel about this movie? How does it rank, um, in, in your viewing of movies? <laughs> uh, I loved it. Um, nice. I thought it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I loved about it most is just it's it's such a universal movie. Like it mm-hmm. could have been made anytime, anywhere, and it it could have been uh I don't think there would have been a whole lot that would have changed, you know. Mm-hmm. Um it's such a simple story and the the characters are just so well-rounded and so real and their motivations are so real and yes. uh there there wasn't a whole like if if this would have been made in hollywood mm-hmm. there would have been you know the you laid out the pro- plot pretty well about you know these parents going and visiting their kids and their kids kind of blowing them off but mm. i feel like if this would have been a hollywood film it would have been there would have been you know one or two big blow up scenes where the kid yes. the parents kind of confront the kids and uh just way more dramatic than it needs to be mm-hmm. um i like that uh 
you can you can get very easily what Ozu was going for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, that and it's just it's a beautiful looking film. Um, Absolutely, great cinematography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> funny story. I was going to listen to the commentary track that they have available on Criterion Channel. By the way, Tokyo Story is available on Criterion Channel as well as HBO Max. And I think those are the only two streaming uh, services. Canopy. And Canopy. There you go. Yeah. Nice. Um, but on Criterion Channel, they do have a commentary track that you can listen to. And I was like, I, so in my, my day job, I work from home, uh, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, but Tuesdays and Thursdays, I work in the office. And what I did before the world changed, um, was I got into a kick of listening to commentary tracks on Criterion Channel of movies that I've seen, just kind of listening to them in the background as if they were podcasts. Yeah. And so I was like, you know, I have a few hours in the office today. I'm going to go ahead and listen to the commentary track for Tokyo Story. Um, and I got like 10 minutes into it because, and I couldn't finish it because it was so, it was like, it was really good. It was really interesting stuff. The problem was that the person doing the commentary track was commenting on just like the, the film technique of Ozu. Okay. And so it was like, like it was just, it was just like, now watch here. He, he, he sets the characters here. And then, and then when he, what well, we cut back, we see them here. And I'm just like, <laughs> this is a visual experience. Yeah. Um, right. So yeah. Whereas like the seven samurai one and, and a bunch of the Kurosawa, Commentary tracks were all like kind of, uh, history of, of Japan and everything. So, right. Um, so I didn't get a chance to watch a commentary, but I agree with you. This movie was very just, it was mind blowing to me. Um, like you said, kind of the, um, the universality of it and how I, I 100% agree with you that the lack of the big blow up thing, um, like the big dramatic tension, um, this movie lacks that entirely in favor of this just under the surface kind of way of life kind of thing. It's, it's a sli- it's a, like a slice of life movie that has this just, this bit of poignant just drama and, and kind of just sadness throughout it that this idea of not only are the, are the, the, children of the main characters are there. It's not so much that they're too, to an extent they're too busy to spend time with their, with their parents, but it's also just that they have lived a, they, they they're living completely different lives or they are living lives so far removed from their parents that they're like, there's a point in this movie where they kind of, they just agree like, okay, well let's send them to this. Let's send them, send them to the spa. Yeah for a few days and like it's just that kind of really hurt me a little and, bit and they they do it with good intentions they're exactly. not they're not like oh you know i don't i don't feel like hanging out with them yep. now they're, so it's it's not that they're pawning them off onto the the spot but it's yeah. also just this complete disconnect and disregard because they're like oh they'll have they'll really enjoy this and everything and then when the parents get there it's like this is a youth, like a youth hostel, essentially. <laughs> and like everyone is being super disruptive and loud and they can't get any rest or anything. And it's just, it shows that like, okay, the kids sent, sent them there because they didn't take into consideration like how the parents would, would feel about it. It was more like, oh, this is a thing we would enjoy. So they would enjoy too. So there's yeah. that kind of emotional, like, 
lack of I don't know if I'd say lack of empathy, but um, but this just lack of consideration. And consideration, yeah. yeah. It's just it like those little things are so like sprinkled in throughout the entire movie, right? And it just feels so natural and and real. And it it was man, it really it really struck a chord with me. Yeah, and to go along with that, uh, it's. Early on, like when they first get to, I think that's their son's house, mm-hmm. uh, and they're introducing them to their grandkids. Yeah, and like yes. one of the oldest one is like in middle school, I think they mm-hmm. say. And it's the first time they've met him, which is just a crazy, yeah. uh, just a little detail that, that he throws in there that is just, mm-hmm. it blows your mind that, you know, I, I, I know my parents, you know, they they would kill me if I uh <laughs> withheld their grandkids <laughs> from them for 13ish years. Uh so um just it it just really helps to set a background for mm. uh their their relationship with their parents and Absolutely. uh what their lives are like. Yeah, and it also kind of like trickles down through the relationship with the grandchildren, children as well. Cause like one of them keeps running away from the grandparents. Yeah. And it's like, there's just this, this very, um, I wouldn't say subtle, but this undercurrent of this disconnect of like this family disconnect. And it's not through any fault of anyone involved really for the most part. There's some stuff that comes to light later, but it's more, it's just kind of like, it's just a depiction of these relatives that aren't really that close to one another and they've drifted apart. And it's the kind of tragic thing about it or the, the most sad and poignant thing about this entire movie is that it's not about them reconnecting. It's just showing us this way of life. Yeah. Um, and something that really just blew my mind after the fact was, um, actually I think this was in the, the commentary track that I listened to for 10 minutes. Um, Ozu never married. Um, hmm. He never married, never had kids or anything. And just the fact that he can tap into this drama throughout a family dynamic so just earnestly and yeah. sincerely um, speaks a lot. And granted, I haven't seen any of his other films, but speaks a lot to his power as a storyteller because that was just something that struck such a chord with me throughout the entire movie. And to find that, to find that out later, I was just, I was very impressed with his ability to kind of create empathy in these characters. Yeah. I would love to, uh, read some kind of, uh, uh, behind the scenes kind of thing about what prompted him to make this or what his inspiration was. Mm -hmm. Um, cause yeah, it's, it's just so rich and so real. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, we'll come back to this in a second, but it just, uh, like, at one point, it just kind of feels like you're almost watching a documentary. Yeah. Um, just the, the performances are just so natural. Mm-hmm. And they're, like I said, there isn't a, a big melodramatic kind of scene. It's all just so slice of life, kind of. Um, it's, it's, the realism is just, just one of the other things that impressed me so much. And I would be very interested to know if Alfonso Cuaron, 
um, drew any inspiration from this when he made Roma. Okay. Because they feel tonally like kind of, kind of similar in execution to an extent. Like obviously there's plenty of just drama and stakes right. in Roma, but it just kind of has that similar feel. I, I don't know. I, I would be interested to know if he drew any inspiration from this movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was going to ask you because this, this movie kind of reminded me of another one that I, I love, which is uh, Shoplifters, which won oh. the Palme d'Or in 2018. Okay. Another Japanese film. Uh, have you seen that one yet? I want to say that you assigned it to me when I did my COVID film festival yeah, thing. I think um, I did. I've got to say I haven't watched it yet. Okay. <laughs> um, also, for those keeping score, I have not watched Good Time yet either. <laughs> And I promise I'll read your essays as well. Um, <laughs> um, but no, I have not seen it. Okay. It's, it's just, I, I saw a lot of similarities in okay. shoplifters in this. Um, very similar in theme about like what it is that makes a family a family. Okay. Um, and it's just another, it's like a quieter, more melodramatic, well, there are some dramatic scenes, but okay. again, it's just really quiet and real realistic, uh, nice. very static kind of mm-hmm. drama. But uh, I would definitely recommend checking that out if you like this one. Nice. It's I'm, on Hulu. Okay. I was just going to yeah. ask if it was on Hulu or Netflix. Yes. Um. Yeah, but... Yeah, Tokyo Story. There, there. To kind of circle back to that, there was, and I think that this is safe to say in, in non-spoilers, but there was a one scene that that really stood out to me as something that I feel was was a really impressive way to um, evolve the story or evolve the backstory or unveil the backstory to the audience mm-hmm. a little bit. It's when the parents have gone to separate places. So the mother is with the, the daughter-in-law and the father is with his friends and he gets drunk and everything. And then the daughter tells, I think the daughter-in-law or someone, the daughter tells maybe her husband. I don't know. The the daughter says to someone like kind of says that like, Oh yeah, he used to get drunk all the time and be really aggressive and, or, uh, and, and, our mother hated it and everything. It was just like that little like sliver of backstory says so much to me and, and, and is really, um, really helps, helps define the, the traits of the characters. It's not like she outright says like, this is why we're not, you know, close with them or anything. But I feel like that is something that is a very small factor into something that I wouldn't say is an estrangement, but it is something that doesn't, it makes it easier for them to lose touch over the years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did that stand out to you? Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, I think that is the daughter talking about, uh, I forget who she's talking to now, Yeah, but yeah, I, I believe it is the daughter. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. And which that, that's another great, scene as the the scene between the father and his friends just getting drunk yeah and, um it's uh i love that scene me too yeah. yeah that was really good um and there's also like this other son that's that isn't even in the movie until like right, the end yeah. uh-huh. um and i feel like that was a really fun or interesting way to kind of establish this this 
I wouldn't even say fractured, just this, this, uh, distant, distant relationship between the, the, the parents and the, and the family. Yeah. Because like throughout the, throughout the film, they're, they're kind of calling this, this, uh, this other son and like asking him like, okay, well you need to come and visit your parents and everything. Cause they're in town. They're going to be in, in Tokyo for a while. And he keeps blowing them off and everything. And that's like kind of the first inkling we get of, how this family operates in terms of kind of socializing with each other and being in each other's, each other's lives. Um, and then he just kind of comes in at the end and we'll talk about that in spoilers if we do a spoiler section. Yeah. But it just, it just feels, it makes the movie feel more complete, but also just more, it adds more, uh, kind of sadness to the overall story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the, we kind of touched on the cinematography a little bit, mm-hmm. but um, one of the notable things that I remember from reading Ebert's review, mm-hmm. um, he did, I think he actually did two of them. One okay. of them was like early on in his career and then he like revisited it in like nice. the 2000s. He'll tend to do that sometimes yeah. I've noticed. Um like so, I know he did. Uh, <laughs> Blade Runner is on the great movies list, and when it first came out, he hated it. <laughs> yeah, or he really didn't like it. Yeah, that's interesting to me. Yeah. Um, but one of the reviews—I don't remember which one—he says that the camera only moves once throughout the entire movie. Whoa! Yeah. Whoa! Every other shot is is just stagnant and static and he just lets the scene just unfold naturally without having to worry about camera placement or anything. Um, so now I kind of want to rewatch it just for that. So that I can spot the moment because I don't remember off the top of my head when that was. Yeah, I can't cause it's, it's such a, it feels like such a, I, wow, I I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like I didn't. That didn't even register with me as as being like just a kind of uh, stationary camera or anything. Like it had the feel of movement. I know that a lot of scenes have like you know trains and stuff and and right. people moving and everything. But that's that's really fascinating. Yeah, huh. and, and I I guess it's it's not like there aren't a whole lot of like one take kind of scenes, kind of like right. Koran or something. Yeah, but uh, yeah, just he kind of frames the camera and then just lets the lets it nice. unfold. You know, yeah, that does especially in the ending. I definitely noticed that kind of in the, in those last scenes. Um, mm-hmm. I can I can definitely see that. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, let's see. Anything else about it? Um, that we can talk about non spoilers? Because I want to kind of dig into some spoilers, but I want to make sure that we cover it as well. Um, I guess it's not really a spoiler since you mentioned it in the plot summary, but the, I, I really love the extra touch of the daughter in law who's not even related to them. Mm -hmm. And she is really the only one that kind of is, inviting and warm to them when they're visiting. And she, of course she has no obligation to, Mm -hmm. uh, be that way to them anymore, but she's, she kind of takes them in when their kids are, uh, not paying attention. I agree completely. That was a section of the movie or a 
portion of the movie that I really just got a lot out of in terms of emotion and everything. Yeah. Like, like you said, the idea that she has no like familial obligation to them, yet she is the warmest and kindest to them and everything. And I kind of think that partially that that is maybe because she didn't grow up with them and everything and doesn't have oh, yeah. like any kind of baggage associated with them. Not that the drinking was implied to be like a very heavy kind of point of contention or anything, but I just feel like she represents someone in, in their lives who does respect them and everything and hasn't lost touch with them or anything. And the way that the, that the parents also very sincerely care about her and her well-being and her happiness throughout the movie. Yeah. Even if they're kind of priding her a little bit or, or uh, uh, what's the, is that the word I'm looking for? They're prodding her a little bit toward like remarrying or whatever. Right, yeah. But just like the idea, like this sincere nature of like, okay, she's not our child, but she is like our child and we want to, we just want her to be happy. Yeah. Like that just... On one hand, that is just really just sweet and genuinely just nice and kind. And on the other hand, it just shows like it informs their characters and it, it amplifies the distance that their actual blood relatives have toward them um, uh, to to a larger degree than if that subplot wasn't involved. So I really yeah. appreciated it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um. Yeah, yeah. Uh that was that was really good. Um should we go into spoilers? Yeah, I mean, well, do we I forget do we ask this uh before or after spoilers when we say if we would put it on our great movies list? Let's do it before. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, first of all, uh thumbs up or thumbs down? Two thumbs up. Nice. Same here. And, uh, yeah, would you put this on a great movies list of your own, Ben? Absolutely. Nice. And I would as well. Um, it's something that is just really remarkable storytelling and very human storytelling. Um, that is free of too, like, free of over dramatizing or anything. It's just, it's just a very straightforward, but subtle depiction of, of family dynamics and relationships that is just so authentic and real that I yes. really appreciated. So will you, uh, I know we'll eventually talk about floating weeds, mm. but will you, uh, search out any of his other movies? I probably will. Um, I don't know when, but I, I'm definitely intrigued to see more of his films because this definitely, uh, definitely struck a chord with me and, um, well, I was really impressed with it. Yeah, same here. Yeah, nice. Um, off the top of your head, is there are there any that you're interested in seeing? Um, he's. I know there's one called Late Spring that mm. I have. I think someone on my letterbox just recently watched that. Actually, nice. Um, so I'll, I would like to see that one. Um, I think it's kind of hard to tell, but um, he's got. I don't know if it's like a trilogy or uh, just a series, but he's got these like seasonal films, I guess. Late spring, yeah. early summer, late autumn, um, early spring. Just, it, yeah, I, I don't know yeah. how they relate to each other, if at all, but um, 
Yeah, I, I'm interested to find out. I agree. Yeah, I noticed those too, and I'm I'm very um, interested in them as well. So yeah, mm-hmm. we will have to see at some point. Um, yeah, interesting. I'm just looking at some lists. Um, yeah, so that's cool. So we'll we'll go ahead and go into spoilers for Tokyo Story. Um, if you want to skip the spoilers and move on to our review of Network, go ahead and check the show notes or go to obsessiveviewer.com slash OV323 for the timestamps in the show notes. Um, so spoilers on for Tokyo Story. I'm going to play a little bit of music or something here to break it up. So when we come back, we're going to go into spoilers for Tokyo Story. This movie goes through some pretty predictable paces about their forbidden love, but I was never really very interested in the characters in Blade Runner. I didn't find it convincing. Instead, what impressed me in this film were the special effects, the wonderful use of optical trickery to show me a gigantic, imaginary Los Angeles, which in the vision of this movie has been turned into sort of a futuristic a Tokyo. performance, and Fargo is the best movie the Farm Brothers have ever made. A quirky, infectious Okay, so Ben, the kind of... The most dramatic thing that happens in this movie is the mother dying. Yes. And it's seated fairly early, or at least it's seated when they uh, go to the spa and she yeah. has trouble getting up from the, from the, uh, her seated position wherever they were. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about this plot development and the reaction of the characters to it? I think it was a really nice, really organic way to, uh, to kind of put a cap on it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, uh, we mentioned the irony of the daughter-in-law, but the irony that, uh, that the death of one of them is what ultimately brings them all together is just another really great subtle touch to yeah. it. Yeah. And even then, like them bringing them, all together in their in their house in whatever the city is that the parents live in, even that is kind of um, it. It's not a it's not a situation that that affects change in their dynamics. Like yeah. nothing really changes between them. And I thought that that was really really just earnest and brilliant. That even at the end, the father is is alone. Um, yeah. And it's just that these kids, they float in, they, they pay their respects, they, they do their thing. Some of them are a little selfish <laughs> about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I think at one point there's even, like, they're talking about, like, what they all want from yes. that was hers. Yes. And it's just, and it's not played, like you, like we said in the non-spoiler, it's not played for dramatic effect or anything. It's just this matter-of-fact thing. Yeah, it's, you're not meant to hate the, these no. people. It's just, it's so just slice of life and and it's just it's there's such a truth to it because it feels so lived in like these characters don't feel like they're reading from a script or they're or anything like that it's just this very naturalistic dialogue and they say it with such just casualness that it's not like this it's not like this um thing where it's like okay we've just suffered this tragic event and i want this thing or whatever it's more like okay well you know, she's passed away and I don't yeah. want this. And it's like, it's, yeah, it's just, it's a very interesting depiction of mourning and everything of right. family mourning. Um, did you ever see the movie other people? 
No, I don't think so. Okay, with Molly Shannon and Jesse Plemons? Oh, no, I know what you're talking about, though. Okay. Yeah. The, it's, it's really interesting, kind of, the, I don't know why this came, well, I know why this came up, but the opening scene of that movie is like the antithesis of this scene in Tokyo Story. Okay. That's all I'll say about it. Um, but it's like, it's just, it's so interesting to kind of compare those two movies on the spectrum of mourning and, and emotion, family emotion, I should yeah. say. Um, yeah. Um, that is really the only thing I had in mind for spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's a fairly plot-light movie. Yeah. Um, How did you feel about the kind of the ending of the father just alone and everything and the the neighbor kind of reinforcing that idea mm-hmm. in the kind of closing scene? How did you feel about that? It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Yeah, it's kind of the, the perfect way to end it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um. Yeah. On that note, I know that I'm not going to be alone because I got a pretty little kitty <laughs> um, who was just biting me earlier. But that's all right. It's because she loves me. Um, she's been sitting there like the whole time. She has. She's she's a good little. She's she's the she's all in addition to being the mascot. She's also the engineer of the podcast. So mm-hmm. yeah. there weren't any cats in this movie, were there? Um, I don't oh, think I'm so. so glad that you asked that. Um, <laughs> no, there weren't. No, there was not. Okay. However, so I did not add it to my Letterbox Letterbox 2020 list on Letterboxd, which I will put a link in the show notes, of course. Um, but there was controversy surrounding this, though. Oh. Um, much like the King of Staten Island, there was a scene. I think it was in this movie. Um, there was a scene because I've watched a lot of old Japanese movies, <laughs> but there's a scene of like a street. Or like a corridor between some houses or something. And there are a couple of animals that run past the camera. And it's okay. dark. And I couldn't tell if those were dogs or cats. Hmm. I think that they were dogs. And I'm, this may have been, mo- no, 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 it was definitely black and white. So it would have been, it would have been, it would have been Tokyo Story. Um, so I don't know. The jury's out on that. Did you catch any cats? No, but. Okay. I mean, that's just another reason to watch this again. Exactly. And. I will assure you, I did freeze it quite a bit and go frame by frame, and I was still inconclusive. Okay. So, yeah. Pizza, what did you think of Tokyo Story? <laughs> I will say I, I kind of hacked this a little bit. Okay. Uh, on, uh, if you watch this on Canopy, mm-hmm. not only can you watch it for free, but you can mess with the speed the playback speed okay, and watch it at like 1.5 or two. Interesting. And since this is all a foreign film, mm-hmm. you're not really, you know, you're just reading it. So, uh, wow. even though it's kind of a long movie, you can, you can hack it and make it a little quicker. So and, uh, are you admitting that you did this in your viewing? No. Okay. Okay. So I was going to say, we would have to call into question your <laughs> thumbs up rating and everything. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting because on, on, in the Twitterverse, um, Netflix just announced that they were going to implement yeah, this or something. I saw that. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about that? Since you obviously didn't do it for <laughs> this movie, <laughs> is this something that you would do in terms of just watching movies? Probably not. Okay. Um, not to go on too much of a tangent, but mm-hmm. I've, been listening to some audiobooks recently mm-hmm. and I listened to one on 1.25 speed. Okay. And 
I don't know if it was that or just the nature of the book, mm-hmm. but I don't think I could tell you a single thing that happened in that Interesting. book. Interesting. So, um, huh. Do you want to mm, say what book it was? It's the fifth book in the Dune series. Oh, nice. Wow. So which, it's already established and everything? Yeah. Huh. Which, in my defense, it's like a 16, 17-hour book. So, oh, yeah. Uh yeah. It's really interesting because I listen to audiobooks at anywhere between 1.4 to 1.6. Okay. And the way I would never do that with a movie or show. Yeah. Um, I do do that with podcasts though. Uh, depending on the show, I do 1.3 usually. But my rat, my reasoning for this is that the intention of the art of movies and TV is to be viewed in that scenario in that yeah. in that speed and everything. When you're listening to an audiobook, I mean everyone reads at a different pace and everything. Right. So that's my rationale. And then also if I speed up podcasts, I can listen to more podcasts. So Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um also <laughs> also uh if <laughs> in the early days of the obsessive viewer, if I sped up the audio <laughs> in the podcast when I re-listened to it, it made me sound like I was a lot more confident than I really was. <laughs> so, so that's another byproduct of that. Okay. Um, okay. So any parting spoiler thoughts on Tokyo Story? We really didn't have much to say in spoilers because it's just kind of all laid out there. Yeah. No, I, I think we said, said everything we could. Nice. Um, all right. Well, that's our review of Tokyo Story. Um, if you guys check it out on HBO Max or Canopy or VOD, VOD whatever. or Criterion, wherever the library, uh, the library, um, let us know what you thought. And, uh, yeah. So we are going to go over to our review of network. Um, I'll go ahead and read the plot summary. Directed by Sidney Lumet, uh, when veteran anchorman Howard Beale is forced to retire his 25-year post because of his age, he announces to viewers that that he will kill himself during his final broadcast. Network executives rethink their decision when his fanatical tirade results in a spike in ratings. Um, So, Ben, this was my pick for the viewing of this... um, edition of the of the miniseries of Ebert's Great Movies list. Um, and the reason that I picked was twofold. <laughs> One, I had watched it the day that we recorded the last episode, <laughs> and I did not want to delay the recording too much, so I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll watch it ahead of time. <laughs> um, so I had watched it then. I didn't have a chance to rewatch it in the interim, but that should be fine. And the other reason was because I felt like it was... Uh, in a sense, prescient to our current state of affairs in terms of media relations and everything. And it also just has a lot to say about, you know, how the world and how the country kind of sensational, sensationalizes things all for profit in terms of, of ratings and everything and advertising rather than actual human stories and, and caring about actual human beings and everything. Yeah. And then, um, it left HBO Max like the day after we recorded. <laughs> so it's not available to stream anywhere, unfortunately, but it is available on VOD and everything. So, um, and something I forgot to mention at the top of this episode, you have gone through the entire AFI top 100 list. Yes. Um, how did that work out and everything? Um, yeah, it was, it was great. I'm glad that I did it. Nice. Nice. Are you gearing up for unspooled season two? Yeah, I'll listen. I don't know how. 
uh, closely. I'll follow mm-hmm. along, but yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so Network. Um, last time on the podcast, Ben, you said that this was a really good movie that you really loved. Um, yeah, and non-spoilers, how'd you feel about Network? Uh, yeah, I, I love it. Um, I first watched it uh, for the AFI Top 100 list mm-hmm. um, almost a year ago, I think. Okay. Maybe late last year. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I, I just instantly loved it for the reasons that you had talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just so prescient right now. Um, in terms of just television and how it functions and just the, the way that, uh, the, the stories that kind of get pushed to the forefront, um, and the the kind of people that get the spotlight, it's uh, it's crazy. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I don't know. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, in addition to that, kind of to kind of jump on the, on that point, it's also just fascinating as a piece of almost science fiction to an extent uh-huh. because this is before the 24 hour news cycle. This is before cable news. This is before reality television and everything like this movie. It didn't set a precedent, but it, it, um, it's predicted a precedent. <laughs> it it yeah. predicted so much and it's not that far off from reality. And I can't, really dif- divorce the current day viewing of that with how it must have been in 1976. Yeah. Um, because it, it must have been just completely bonkers off the wall idea. But now like you can see shit like this in, in the news every day. <laughs> right. Um, just crazy, crazy stuff. Um, yeah. So, so the kind of sensationalism of the movie, the Howard Beale's outburst is the, is probably the most quotable thing from the movie. Um, where, well, I think that this is a later version of it, but he does all of these performances essentially, essentially to get ratings and everything. And like his big thing is he yells, I'm mad as hell and, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah. Um, and he, that's his like motto and his anthem for people to shout and everything. And it's just this very communal or community driven kind of thing that, that it's primal almost. It's yes. Like who, who's not mad as hell about something. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I stubbed my toe today, and I was just like, "Yep, I'm mad as hell." I'm not going to. I didn't really stub stub my toe, but anyway, um, yeah, it's just it's this sense of unity in this. Okay, <laughs> I'll say this. I don't know how much this will correlate because I haven't seen the a couple of these movies in, in a long time. But I feel like, and this is stepping out of the review a little bit, but I kind of feel like Network is to uh nightcrawler what taxi driver is to joker would you say that that's okay. a fair thing have you you've seen um, nightcrawler right i have not it's on my oh, list really? on netflix oh man and i know that you like it a lot yes um, i i kind of i know what it's about okay. um but uh from what i understand about nightcrawler i would say yeah that, that sounds about accurate yeah um, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll go ahead and leave that there. Um, 
And what uh, what you mean by that, I'm assuming, is that uh, Network was kind of like the inspiration for Nightcrawler. Almost. I would think so. It would Nightcrawler kind of borrows from the themes of yeah. Uh, um, it's a little less. How to say? It's a little less outright ripoffy. Okay. Um, from Network as as Joker is to Taxi Driver. Yeah, really. Um, but. It uh, it does have that same kind of DNA within it, um, so it'd be interesting to revisit Nightcrawler after seeing Network now. Yeah, and uh, I I didn't again I didn't do a ton of research, mm-hmm. but from what I understand, um, a lot of audiences thought of this when it came out as a satire or a farce, mm-hmm. and Sidney Lumet was kind of against that. He didn't really. He didn't really think of it explicitly as a farce, right? Um, and what what I remembered the most because uh, I just watched this the other day mm-hmm. for the second time to kind of refresh myself. Um, what I remembered most from the first viewing was all the Howard Beale stuff, and yeah. what I had kind of forgotten about was how secondary that stuff is to the yeah. overall plot because what we didn't talk about was um Faye Dunaway mm-hmm. and William Holden and their kind of uh their story arcs. And yeah. so she's she's one of the network uh she's a programming executive or something like she's that, in charge yeah. of programming. And, and she's kind of she's kind of well, she's very like ruthless. Um, yeah. And to kind of bring it back to, to comparing it to Nightcrawler and everything, Renee Russo's character in, in Nightcrawler is very much uh, an archetype of Faye Dun- Dunaway in this movie. Um, okay. From from what I remember of Nightcrawler, but anyway, yeah. And she's she's ruthless. She's she's advocating for these really just kind of <laughs> grotesque and disturbing news stories and everything, yeah. as if like. That that I feel like was the most satirical kind mm-hmm. of stuff because the the big subplot with her is that she's like trying to get this show made about this kind of terrorist organization almost yeah. where they like each episode is them like going and committing a crime like robbing a bank or taking mm-hmm. hostages or something and it all comes from. This footage that that she was shown that shows shows this organization. Um, I can't remember exactly what they what what mm-hmm. their affiliation was or whatever, but it was interesting because like they they become like like uh, greedy like uh, capitalists in this network setting and everything yeah. because they eventually like they're negotiating these. Uh, <laughs> these these contracts and everything for their for their ratings and everything and they're like a they're like some kind of like liberation group or something right. for for something but these videos that Faye Dunaway is introduced to it, like i it may be our introduction to her character in, in, in herself mm-hmm. but it's like her being shown these this footage this real footage of uh this like bank heist involving these these people and her immediate reaction is like, we should sell this. Like we'll, we'll base, we'll create a TV show and like create like an hour long drama out of it and have it, have this be like the introduction to it and build a story around it and everything. And it's just like, 
on one hand, like I, I like I said, I would be very interested to see how audiences took that in 1976. Like you said, it's probably taken as like satire and more farcical than right. anything. But I mean, it's not that far off from what we see these days. Like yeah. in terms of just dramatizing things. Like I mean, it's not the same thing, but like. Thinking of like, uh, some of like Ryan Murphy's stuff, like the OJ trial show, and, uh, he has impeachment coming up and he's done other ones, but like that kind of true crime kind of thing. And also Law and Order has built an entire yeah. franchise out of this. But yeah, I was just, I was really interested in that, in that subplot. Yeah. And, uh, so the, the other kind of, subplot with her is she begins this romance uh affair with William Holden who is uh Howard Beale's friend or mm. boss and yeah. uh I think a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh that's kind of how we're introduced to them at the mm. in the first scene. And um and so they they begin this affair and he's he he's in the news division and she takes over the news division yeah. i think and um so their relationship is another subplot that that was just really i had almost forgotten about it i didn't totally forget about it but i guess i just forgot about how mm-hmm. much how much that dominates the film me too i i was kind of surprised that that was such a such a significant arc in the movie. Yeah. And it kind of felt a little bit out of place to me until I listened to shout out to a much more popular and, and <laughs> much more successful podcast than this, but Unspooled, when they covered it, um Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson had pointed out or, or when they discussed that part, something that just did not register with me until they talked about it was that they frame everything like those two characters frame everything in terms of media. So like when they're having like a fight or a quarrel of some kind, it's like in turn, like William Holden, um, he like frames it in the, in like, Oh, this is the scene where we do this and everything. Yeah. 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 Um, and I thought that was really insightful on unspooled's part and just really showed how little I paid attention to this movie. Um, (laughs) yeah, there's, I was trying to look at it this time. I don't know if there are any scenes that Faye Dunaway is in where she talks about anything other than work and television and ratings. And like there's, there's a memorable scene or series of scenes where they like go on a date Mm -hmm. and like they're having sex and she, uh, (laughs) she has an orgasm while talking about like, I forget (laughs) what it is, uh, specifically, but she's she's just talking about ratings, yeah. And, uh, like while they're having sex, and <laughs> yep. it gets her off, and and even like their their first the first scene where they're where it's like revealed like oh they're they're about to they're about to bone down. Um, I don't know if that's even an expression. <laughs> anyway, um, so they're like going to get together is when they're having dinner, and she's like she's talking to him about his work and how it has influenced her, and she has this kind of like weird like hero worship kind of aspect to it. it's like oh i grew up watching you on tv and everything yeah. like you were influential and everything it's like even then when she's flattering him and giving him like attention and affection and everything it's through the lens of work and through their their careers um so i thought that was really um 
really insightful for Unspooled, and I'm really glad that I got to piggyback off of that point. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and and I, yeah, I uh, the spectacle of Howard Beale. Yeah. Um, I had thought going into this movie, I thought that it was all about the week leading. I I thought that it was going to be about the week leading up to him committing suicide on air. Like I thought that that's how the movie was going to be structured. Okay. Because really all I knew about network was that he gets, he gets on, uh, he's a, he's a news anchor who says that he's going to kill himself on live TV. Yeah. Um, and that I knew that he had a big outburst. Like I know Aaron Sorkin is like in love with that. Um, (laughs) He basically cribbed it for the opening scene in uh, the newsroom. Right. But what I wasn't anticipating was that the network creates in Howard Beale a spectacle um, in a ratings machine. So he gets in, he gets just amplified so much throughout it. Like he becomes like a variety show host, essentially. Yeah. Where that's like his shtick. And, um, yeah, how did you feel about the evolution of Howard Beale and uh, throughout the movie? Yeah, I I loved it. Um, I this uh, viewing, I part of me kind of wanted uh, a scene before he says he's going to kill himself, mm-hmm. um, where we're shown that he is a competent newsman because the the whole kind of thing kind of hinges on him being this trusted um uh, yeah. uh established news journalist kind of like Dan Rather or Ted right. Koppel or something and then he just has this breakdown um and we so, never really see it that's true right yeah the the movie actually opens with him uh being told that he's getting fired or shortly after he's told that yeah um so but it you can still see that in what we're given that he is this guy who you could see as a Dan rather type yeah. who uh, goes insane basically. And I think uh, Peter Finch, the actor that plays him, uh, he just plays that so well, this kind of deranged um, guy who's just lost his mind yeah. and is just hanging on by a thread and just, want someone to like reach out to him and help him. And you feel like if that would happen, then he would, the, it'd be a totally different movie. Oh, absolutely. But and all they care about is like <clears throat> how his ratings are doing yeah. from week to week. Oh, absolutely. And kind of an added kind of tragedy through, through this is that, um, let's see. He, uh, Peter Finch, uh, passed away shortly after this movie came out. He yes. Passed away in 1977, and um, he was nominated for Best Picture. And I'll go ahead and read there, this. He he won Best now. Actor. Yeah. Or Supporting Actor. One uh, of them. Best Actor. So Peter Finch died before the Academy Awards were to take place, where he was nominated for Best Actor. He won, making him the first performer ever to receive a posthumous award for the Oscars. And the second winner was a fellow Australian Heath Ledger for The Dark Knight in 2008. Yep. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, so I thought that was interesting and, and tragic in, in and of itself. Um, and I want to say, I can't say with any certainty. I, I'll, I won't say that anecdote because I, I can't confirm it. 
But, uh, yeah. So anything else or should we go into spoilers? Uh, I, we, you just kind of touched on it, but I kind of would like to talk about the Oscars with this movie. So Peter Finch wins. Mm -hmm. Faye Dunaway wins best actress. Uh, Beatrice Strait wins supporting actress. She is, uh, William Holden's wife. Oh. And she, she has like one scene, yeah, but a pretty memorable scene right. where she she just kind of scolds William Holden. Right. Uh, she finds out that he's had an affair, and mm-hmm. he uh, she confronts him and just tells him how shitty he is. Yeah. Um, huh. So that's a, that was a really interesting win. Yeah. Um, and then it won best screenplay, hmm. uh, lost best picture. Uh, William Holden lost Best Actor. Hmm. Uh, Ned Beatty was nominated supporting role. Wow! Which he's he's another one scene person. But that scene, holy crap! <laughs> like, oh man, that scene was that scene was incredible. And not only was it incredible in terms of acting and everything, because it's him. He's uh, was is he like the head of the network or something? Yeah, and he's basically scolding Howard Beale. But it turns into this monologue, this this epic monologue where he's equating. You the, have messed with the laws of nature. Yes, <laughs> it's just it is brilliant, and what's what is even what enhances it even more is the way that it's filmed. Like, um, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember it's like it's framed where it's at the end of a long table. Yeah, it's in like a way. conference room. Yeah. And the only lights are these little like lamps on the yes. on the table at each of the seats. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just really dramatic. I think there's even like a spotlight on Ned Beatty. Yeah. And it's just so, so dramatic good. and over the top. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. Yeah. Uh just really really impressive. Um yeah, yeah. I, I I love that. So yeah, he he was nominated best supporting actor. Oh. Uh it was nominated best picture. Uh pretty solid uh lineup for best picture this year, but it lost yeah. to Rocky. Okay. Um oh, yeah. The other nominees were I'm stalling, I'm stalling, I'm stalling. <laughs> Rocky, all the president's men. Bound for Glory and Taxi Driver. Wow. So a really solid lineup of Best Picture nominees. I have never heard of Bound for Glory. No, I hadn't either. Hmm. Um, Do you think it's a prequel to Glory? Yeah. Or Paths of Glory. (laughs) Right. uh, The Glory Trilogy. Yeah. (laughs) Glory Road. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. Four four Oscars for this one. Wow. And then um, kind of to piggyback off of this uh i i forget if it was last year or the year before but recently it was adapted to a broadway broadway play yeah with brian cranston as the uh uh Um, howard beale character um and uh tatiana maslany was faye dunaway right yes uh, her character um yeah to kind of Plug unspooled. You're welcome, guys. <laughs> um, they interviewed Tatiana Maslany on their episode. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, that would be a really interesting, interesting show. I think, yeah, Brian Cranston could easily do Howard Beale. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, 
if Broadway ever comes back. Yeah, if anything <laughs> ever comes back. Um, yeah, so should we dive into spoilers for Network? Sure. Okay, so we're going to go into spoilers for Network, but first, uh, as we're, as we're want to do on this, uh, Ben, thumbs up, thumbs down. Yes, thumbs up. Same here. And would you put this on a list of great movies of your own? Yeah, and actually I've, I've got a letterbox list that's, uh, movies I can't wait to show my kids when they're old enough. Right. And this is on that list. So nice. I'm excited to see what they think of it. Sweet. I will put a link to that list in the show notes as well. I would, I would probably put this on a list as well. Mm-hmm. I do want to ask you, um, any other Sydney Lament movies that jump out to you? Like, how does it rank with Sydney Lament movies that you've seen? I believe I have only seen 12 Angry Men. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I would say I put this above it, above okay, 12 Angry Men. I really love 12 Angry Men though. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, I, off the top of my head, I, um, I've, I've seen 12 Angry Men and Failsafe as well as Network. Okay. And I'm sure I've probably seen one or two other ones maybe, but in those three, um, I would honestly rank this third i think Hmm. um and that's mostly that's that's more because i just think he uh, like i think he's a really talented filmmaker and i mean it's like those are three really good movies yeah um failsafe in particular uh, failsafe and 12 angry men are kind of uh like kind of neck and neck with me they're interchangeable i just i really loved failsafe um yeah, so that that's where I would rank it. So, uh, shall we go into spoilers now? Yeah. Okay, great. So we're gonna go into spoilers for Network. Um, if you haven't seen it, uh, go ahead and turn off the podcast or you know whatever. Uh, spoilers on for Network. Here's a piece of music, and then when we come back, we're gonna have spoilers for Network. It really involved me. I was surprised how caught up I got in this movie and in the behavior of the characters. This is a very good movie that is sometimes hard to watch because of a level of violence and depravity that is unusual even among crime films. Words right they have the words exactly right. You know what I like too was the stylistic freedom they gave themselves. I spent a lot of my Saturday matinees. So Ben, um, <laughs> the decision at the end of the movie to kill Howard Beale, um, the assassin, the public assassination of Howard Beale. How did you feel about that? How did that how did that kind of sit with you in modern America now that you're watching it? <laughs> um I uh I mean of course I don't want to see people get killed on TV. But, right. Um I thought it was a really uh or not organic, well, sort of organic, but just a another broad uh over the top way of capping off this story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> capping off. Um, <laughs> and just the way that it's like the, the scene, uh, with Robert Duvall and Faye Dunaway and all mm-hmm. of them where they talk about if they should kill him. And it's not even really if they should, but it's just someone brings yeah. it up and then just like, how are they going to do it? Right. <laughs> and it's amazing because isn't like much earlier in the movie, isn't that one of like Faye Dunaway's like, pitches when she sees the footage like we could even assassinate someone yeah yeah probably um and it's just it's so interesting the way that that plays out and like the kind of it's it's an incredibly bleak ending and like the the last shot is just zooming out of all of these screens that are showing like different like different uh i think it's showing advertisements actually 
And it's like that I thought was just brilliant. Um, a brilliant way to end the movie because it's all about just ad revenue and ratings and everything. Right. And it's, it's where like media is causing us to lose our humanity uh, so much so that like even now, like this doesn't, I mean, granted, yes, it is a very far fetched thing. Like it's, it's something like something that's crazy and everything, but. In the world we live in, I don't see it as crazy as I'm sure 1976 audiences would have seen it as crazy. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's just really remarkable storytelling. Yeah, there's, uh, I think Ebert brings this up in one of his reviews, which I'll come back to in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, but like very early on when Howard first says he's going to kill himself on TV, mm -hmm. the, you're, you hear it in the control room and oh, yeah. he says it. And then everyone's just kind of like nobody, nobody says anything everyone's until like a minute or two later. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, Hey, did anyone else hear that? <laughs> like, uh, and that's, that's just like, it's a way to clue you in on the, the kind of world that you're about to see, you know? Yeah. Um, just kind of the over, like you can, there, there is an element of satire in that, but there is also an element of reality. Absolutely. As well. Yep. Just this, uh, just like I said, just on autopilot. Everyone just there. It's a function of a job that's a cog in a wheel. And like that is throughout all of like society and everything. But since they are the news, like it's media, it's something that's an important, an important piece of our culture that just to see them on autopilot is kind of distressing a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think we're we're about out of time. So the, that I think will do it for this review of Network. Any other thoughts you want to bring up for spoilers? Um, I don't know if it's really a spoiler, but I I forgot to mention earlier. Uh, like I said, this is another movie that Ebert did two mm -hmm. reviews on, and the first one, kind of like what you were mentioning with, uh, uh. Blade Runner, mm -hmm. he was kind of mixed on it okay. uh, at first. I, I noted that he he thought that the satire was like too over the top and too broad. Wow. And then he came back to it, uh, I forget how many years later. But hmm. um, yeah, he, he talked about just how relevant it is and how almost realistic wow. it is. Yeah. But yeah. Huh. Interesting. Um, I will have to read these essays <laughs> at some point. Um, yeah, that it's, it's a really, it's a really well done movie. I really liked it. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think that'll do it for that review. Um, we do have business to attend to as we need to pick our next two movies. Yes. Um, so Ben, would you like me to go first with our, with my selection for what we for what we should review next time on this series of episodes on the podcast. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So I had a few ideas that I wanted to that I wanted to uh name. Like I, I had like picked like two or three movies um that I was going to do. And then all of that got washed away yesterday <laughs> <laughs> because Criterion announced a new box set that's coming out in I think November uh to celebrate the one hundred the 100 year birthday of Federico Fellini. Mm -hmm. Um, it's the essential Fellini box set. I think it has like 15 of his movies. And so 
kind of in honor of that, and since I've never seen any of Fellini's movies, and I'm very curious about the box set, like I want to buy it, but I want to make sure that I've seen at least one of his movies. Yeah. Um, I humbly suggest for our next entry in this series of episodes on The Obsessive Viewer that we watch and review a movie that is available on HBO Max, Eight and a Half. Okay. Okay. Have you seen it? No, I haven't, but nice. uh, it's on my list as well. Sweet. Uh, I obviously, you've never seen it either. I'll also note it's also on Canopy. Nice. Awesome. So hopefully it stays on those services. <laughs> um, and hopefully we don't have another network thing. By the way, um, completely forgot to mention this at the top of this episode, but... Um, uh, After Hours is available on, like, it's suddenly available everywhere. <laughs> like, it's on HBO Max, it's on Hulu, it's Go on... Go figure. Yeah, so it, it is available there if you guys want to check that movie out. Okay. Um, yeah. So, Ben, I'm so excited. What is your pick for, for, for the next installment? Okay, so I figured I would not just go completely random again this time. Okay. Um, and I was looking through the list, and looking at the years specifically and this is uh well i'll just say it it's called the cabinet of dr caligari okay uh by robert wine vine veen okay uh not sure totally but the reason i picked <laughs> this this movie came out in 1920 so huh. it is 100 years old now i so, like that um, yeah, and, <laughs> you know and I believe it's the only movie from this list from that year. So interesting. I, I kind of, <laughs> I kind of feel like your, um, your goal with this is to constantly have the first, first movie in each, each pairing <laughs> to be reviewed because we're doing it chronologically between the pairs. So eight and a half is from like 1950, um, something. Uh, I just had it here. 1963. Okay. Um, yeah. So should we read the plot summaries real quick before sure. we go? All right. So plot summary for Eight and a Half by Frederica Fellini from 1963 is Guido Anselmi, a film director, finds himself creatively barren at the peak of his career. Urged by his doctors to rest, uh, Anselmi heads for a luxurious resort, but a sorry group gathers his producers, staff, actors, wife, mistress, and relatives, each one begging him to get on with the show. In retreat from their dependency, he fantasizes about past women and dreams of his childhood. Uh, like I said, that is available to stream on HBO Max. Nice. In Canopy? Yep. And, uh, Ben, do you want to read the plot summary of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Yes. Uh... Hypnotist Dr. Caligari uses a, oh boy, some <laughs> somnambulist okay. Caesar to commit murders. So, uh, Interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, real excited. I don't know if this is going to be like a, a, IMDB says fantasy horror mystery. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I I guess because of the year it'll be a silent film. So yeah, um, I think so too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm very much looking forward to it. Also, uh, the cabinet of Doctor Calgary is 77 minutes long, so I'm very excited about that. Yeah, yeah. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, also available to stream on Amazon Prime and Canopy. Nice. So uh, that was another reason to pick that. So very nice. 
Yeah. Awesome. Well, we have our assignments. We will meet back at some point for these uh, for these reviews. I'm very excited for both of them. Um, yeah, it should be fun. Any, Definitely. Uh, parting thoughts before we go. I know you've got to head out here soon. Okay. Um, any parting thoughts or no. do you want to plug where? Oh, uh, I did want to mention uh, some reviews that you've posted and everything. Okay. Um, have you posted anything in the interim? Uh, the last one was Yes, God, Yes. Oh, yeah. Do you want to talk about Yes, God, Yes real quick? Sure. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, uh, really funny indie comedy. Um about Catholic school and uh, the Catholic Church's views on sex and mm-hmm. sexuality uh, told through a, uh, a high school uh, retreat at a Catholic school. Um, and it's told in the uh, early 2000s when uh, AOL chat rooms were still a thing. And uh, really great. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's got, um, uh, I'm planking on her character's name, uh, the older sister in Stranger Things. Yeah. Oh, what is her name? Uh, Natalia Dyer. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, her Timothy Simons from Veep. Hmm. Um, yeah, just a, a really solid little, uh, indie comedy that's also fairly short like 67 70 ish minutes long so check it out it's on vod now Uh, i would highly recommend it nice and i really liked your review because it has you you incorporate a lot of of your experience within the catholic church and everything into it i thought that was really a really really good review yeah i went on a, a retreat when i was a senior in high school that was uh freakishly similar to what's depicted here like down to the littlest, just <laughs> weirdest details, and I I really enjoyed that part of it. I don't know. Nice. I'd like to see your yours mm-hmm. or Tiny's or Mike's or someone else's uh, perspective on it. Someone that didn't nice. go to high school like mm-hmm. that. So um, I'm sure to the outsiders, it probably looks like uh, these people are insane, and there <laughs> yeah. is some element of that, but. Uh, it's, I can vouch for it. It's almost all totally real. Nice. Wow. Well, I will definitely check that out. It's on my radar. Um, so yeah, I will check that out and quick plug for some stuff I have coming up on the, on the website. I am currently embarking upon a review series of all the movies in the Godzilla Showa era criterion, uh, collection box set. And I am sprinkling in some bonus reviews in those, in that review series. So check that out. Um, the first one at the time of this, uh, recording has already gone up for the first Godzilla from 1954, one of my favorite movies of all time. And then, uh, by the time this episode releases, I will have the second movie in the series done, um, and posted. So check that out. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes and everything. And then also I have a review of Project Power coming out and I have, I just reviewed the Russian sci-fi horror movie Sputnik, which was pretty good. Very excited um, for that one. Yeah, it was it was pretty solid. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. Well, that I think will do it for this episode of the podcast. Uh, thank you, Ben, for joining me on this on this on this episode again. Yeah. And, thanks for having uh, me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, 
Once again, check out Ben's reviews or his essays on Midwest Film Journal uh, as he's embarking upon the series of don't, reviews. Don't make me go it alone. Yes, yes, uh, that poor guy. <laughs> um, so check out his Happy Valley essay series on Midwest Film Journal. And next up on the podcast, no idea what I'm what, what we're going to have, <laughs> but we'll figure it out. The New Mutants. The New <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. If that even... <laughs> We'll see. Um, So, yeah, that'll do it for this episode. Uh, Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you, and enjoy. Theaters, they like they'll say like okay they have um, they'll have like uh, safety measures in place and everything will be thoroughly cleaned and cleaned and cleaned and cleaned and everything. But also, the cynic in me is like, I worked in a movie theater when I was a teenager. <laughs> yep, I did not have nowhere near the work ethic that I would be comfortable <laughs> being in the presence of during a pandemic. <laughs> like, right? Yeah. There, I just. I don't know. That just seems like eesh, that. That just seems like empty promises. Yeah, and those guys are making minimum wage. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. Yep. And it's it's probably yeah all high schoolers. Right. The Obsessive Viewer podcast is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to ObsessiveViewer.com/slash/ov/archive. You can also like our Facebook page and join the OV Facebook group at facebook.com slash the obsessive viewer and follow us on Twitter at obsessive viewer and at obsessive tiny and follow our recurring co-hosts at I am Mike white. That's me at R a Fekus and at burger underscore lurker. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at obsessiveviewer.com slash donate, or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. For official Obsessive Viewer merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, visit our Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at obsessiveviewer.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at tpublic.com, T-E-E, public.com. For information about our annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find Anthology, Matt's solo podcast covering The Twilight Zone, and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology TV shows at anthologypod.com and on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, 
Check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. The theme music for The Obsessive Viewer comes courtesy of the band Loudlike from their EP, Mistakes We Must Make. Additional bumper music is provided courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty!